Mike, I am so glad that you're on this show. You have been one of my favorite people that overlaps creative and business and branding for a really long time. And, and you are part of one of my favorite memories. And that was, I think it was 2005 or so at Dragon Con when you were with, had Mirror Mask and you were walking around and people were treating you like you were spun gold because you were an exec from the, from uh, the Jim Henson company. I don't know if that's wow. at all in your memories, but to oh. me, that was kind of a, a fun and interesting piece of the puzzle is watching people fangirl and fanboy you. You know, it was funny about that entire event was that my flight was delayed. So I got there late and they actually had to scramble to find a, a new room for me to be in because the original room with, that was set up was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't there. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't show. So they gave me like two or three rooms to go to. So the, which I, 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 or I, I'm sorry, they gave me one room. Uh, which was supposed to be the correct room to go to for the uh, reschedule. And I first the first door I opened, it was filled with vampires. <laughs> the, <laughs> the second door that I went to was filled with people from Middle Earth. And then I finally found the the room that I was supposed to be in talking about the movie. So it was uh, Dragon Con was definitely a memorable experience for that and and more. For that and more. So we'll come back around again. Can you maybe start us off, Mike, with the, because you're doing so many things right now. What is your current adventure with big air quotes around it? So I would say it's, uh, it's two different things. One is I'm still heavily involved in IP development production. Um, but really, really um, IP that is focused on, um, I, I, I would say uh, this fantasy science fiction uh, space. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I love this this kind of genre, and uh, you know, I won't be doing a, a police procedural. Um, <laughs> that's not you know not necessarily in in my in my blood. Uh, and there's always this touch of merchandising to it. There's a component to it that that extends the experience beyond just the uh, filmed entertainment, for example. Uh, so that's one aspect. And then another piece of what I'm doing, which is completely different and yet tangentially related, is working with hardware systems um, that were originally designed to go into satellites uh, that are now being used terrestrially, uh, that are low-power uh, small footprint and uh, incredibly fast. So it's, and the, the reason I've kind of fell into those is because there's a ton of rendering that's done on the uh, production side, which was kind of the initial foray, which, and, and, you know, going way, way back, I was, I was in the tech space for you know, very the first few years of my career. So we're going to haul back to that and go back and go back yeah. in time. Of course. Um, I really love having people on this show that are many different facets and kind of roll between them. And you definitely are one of those people who has deep dived into areas and then comes back into kind of plugging it together later. So I'm going to drag you back to young personhood. <laughs> so um, when, when you were a young person, um, 
you grew up in New York, if I remember correctly. Yes, born and raised. I was, so uh, when you were a young person, 12, 13, 14 years old in New York, um, what were the things you did? Were you a tech guy? Were you taking apart uh, small computers? Were you drawing? Were you uh, organizing all your friends? What was kind of the the mic of the era? So I can I can probably peg it to when I was even younger, maybe like seven or eight, where my neighbor's dad was a pharmacist, Joey Melchioni, who I haven't talked talked to him since I was probably ten. But um, he's come home with stacks of comic books, and um, I would read them voraciously. Uh, love the artwork, love the storytelling, love. But it was like this magical thing that I had never really got involved with before. And it it created a uh, just a love and appreciation for art, illustration, and storytelling. And, um, and that's what inspired me to start drawing. You know, I wanted a truck for comics. And then as I started to get even more involved in drawing, I wanted to learn how to animate you know there so that so that was a uh definitely a, a, a big influence and a, my older sister was extremely talented she still is extremely talented uh artist but uh, uh yeah it's funny how the things that that kind of inspire you as a kid stick with you your entire life or you keep wishing you went back to you, you headed yeah. into that direction, but a lot of people go, well, I was drawing when I was 12. Why did I not go back to drawing? So your parents were supportive of you and your sister and any other siblings in being creative. Oh, absolutely. Your parents were not. cool with it. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> my, my parents, it, it was funny. Um, I, uh, in high school, so eighth grade, actually, I was put into a high school drawing class, uh, art class, but it wasn't a freshman uh, in high school drawing class. I was with all the seniors for four years, had a portfolio, uh, applied to all these great schools, art schools, and um, got in. But my parents, you know, I was the first kid to go to college to get a four-year degree in my family. Uh, when I graduated college, my dad graduated college. He went back to school to get okay. his uh, bachelor's degree. He's a uh, retired general in the military, so very different path. Um, my mom, I don't even know if she completed high school. So uh, I was first kid to go through. So when my mom uh, heard me say something about art or something art related she had a coronary <laughs> thinking <laughs> what happened to doctor or lawyer you know it's something that is considered a profession so it's not that they weren't supportive they loved the art that i was doing in fact i would get these uh photos that were kind of destroyed half destroyed of old relatives and my mom would ask me to try and recreate them as illustrations or oh. um i do paintings or but you know, it, it just, it didn't work out. So I ended up going to, uh, uh, you know, getting a liberal arts uh, degree from the State University of New York at Binghamton because A, it was affordable 
and B, it was a top rated state university uh, in New York. And uh, it wasn't an art school, unfortunately. So you, you, your parents were happy with liberal arts, but they weren't happy with art school? Well, because they viewed the liberal arts degree as a stepping stone to, because you kind of you need the undergraduate degree in order to go. Like I could, I, I, I was poli sci, graphic design with a minor in illustration. That's what I ended up double majoring in. <laughs> go figure, right? Go draw political cartoons. So, um, but they still saw that as a stepping stone into either getting a business degree, getting. Uh, uh, you know, going to law school. I mean, any of those things I could have, I could have done afterward. So what did young Mike do? So after graduating college, it was a boom times. This is 1987, uh, where if you had a pulse, you could get a job because it was, it was terrific. So a few friends of mine lived in Boston. So I moved to Boston gave myself two weeks to find a job and a place to live and, and did. And it was a terrible first job. Uh, I had worked uh, summers for uh, the division of military and naval affairs. My dad ended up being able to connect me up with a, a job because Albany, New York, which is where I went to high school, or in, actually in a suburb of Schenectady um, called Niskayuna, uh, that's where the headquarters in Albany was for the Division of Military and Naval Affairs for the state. So they had civilian positions. They'd hire people on for the summer. And that helped me helped me land my first job working in, um, uh, believe it or not, for uh, submarines uh, selling or sending uh, high, highly classified uh, communications from one thing to the in one place to the next uh, because I had a clearance from my first job. Uh, needless to say that the first person that I, that the person that hired me introduced me to my new boss after a week, she sat down with me and she said, we need to find you another job. And I said, <laughs> why, why is that? She said, you are going to be bored. Uh, like you would not believe if you stay here, you need to go find something else and I'm going to help you. And, um, she was true. Darlene Quarles. She was phenomenal. So I ended up working in tech at a company called a tiny little company on the 128 belt, which was considered America's technology highway uh, back in the day. That's when uh, digital equipment was around, when uh, lots of Boston-based technology companies were extremely prominent. And I, I ended up working for a little uh, company that made software to replace uh, typesetting machines. So these $100,000 typesetting machines, you could now run on this new cool thing called a personal computer. Uh, now that, we're dating ourselves. This is a terrible conversation, Mike. I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, so it's it, all good. And it runs so, your software, too. <laughs> so were you drawing then? I mean, were you then going home and drawing or hanging out with people who were art people or you were taking your creative self and working with this new personal computer. So it was, it was a hard time for me, I have to say, because I was still drawing, but on the side, I had missed the window of being able to have a regimented uh, experience where 
if you're going to RISD, you are drawing every day. You are not only drawing every day, but you're getting critiqued. You are getting feedback, information on how to do storytelling. Now, I, I ended up taking a bunch of classes undergrad and and learned a few things um, at a great anatomy class, took some you know, great design and composition classes. Drawing anatomy, not book, sorry. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Who... <laughs> yes. Not biological anatomy no, no. or not other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it just wasn't the same, you know, as, as anything that I would have gotten. So it was the equivalent of falling behind in a race that I knew I couldn't end up catching up to. But... I still voraciously read a lot of, you know, books or comics or graphic novels, whatever that, uh, so storytelling and, and characters and character development were still incredibly important. And I always felt that, the I wanted to get into entertainment at some point, but it just had, you know, there's no path, uh, really in, uh, Boston. But ironically, this first job I got is because I was uh, doing graphic design for the newspaper in college. I was uh, typesetting initially and uh, doing page layout. And um, because they were doing this typesetting software, I ended up uh, getting a job because I knew how to typeset. And, and typesetting, for those of you who have no idea what the heck I'm talking about, is you know when you were laying out a newspaper, there was there wasn't this thing called WYSIWYG, which is what you see is what you get, where you could see on screen what would appear on paper. You actually had to write code to determine what the line space point size. But before that, you were actually doing this stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were actually putting type down. This Pieces is a digital version of that. And this is about the time I was actually doing a newspaper at UCLA as a, as a grad student and also having to learn typesetting. So I'm totally grokking where you are with that right now oh, yeah. as to as to the new software that lets you do this, but then people didn't know how to do that. And you have to actually, yeah, it wasn't as simple as I'm now putting a, a, a header one on whatever the, the text was, or you're doing it, but you're doing it in code. So how did this progress to the next you? How what you were then looking at, what do I do with my life? And I'm sitting here working with personal computers and typesetting stuff. Yeah, well, the the beauty is I did learn how to rip apart a PC and put it back together. Um, I I did I learned a lot about you know motherboards and uh, how, you know buses and it was it was a it was really actually enjoyable. I, I I found that inner nerd in me that enjoyed technology, um, but I also saw that most technology at that stage was driven by engineers, not by marketers. Steve Jobs hadn't quite made it yet. You know, the Mac uh, was being introduced at the time. It wasn't a mainstay. You know, the Apple IIe was cool, but it was still not a thing. So I decided to go back uh, to grad school um, because I thought going broader would be better because I was in a very narrow kind of niche business. So I went back to um, Northeastern University. They have a uh, MBA co-op program because I also wanted to try a few other things outside of uh, where I was and um, did that. But graduated. not art school. You didn't go to art school for grad school. No, I, 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 I didn't. I, you know, this goes back to the more business minded 
um, the struggle within me has always been arts and creative versus the practicality of needing to eat. <laughs> so, food. so I need oh, food. Yeah. <laughs> shelter, food, you know, not that artists cannot make a living. They can make a tremendous living, but, um, there was a lot of, I think, fear built into me by, by my folks that, Hey, you know, don't, you know, don't go down that path. There's, there's, uh, uh challenges then. So, um, so from yeah. MBA, how did you end up at, I think, craft? What was the next journey step? What, cause that yeah. seems like, um, I mean, a great brand layer to put onto what then became a great lens for you, but how did you make that choice? So when I was, when I was at uh, Northeastern, they have a couple of different, so there's a couple of different um, assignments that you go on, essentially. Uh, I, I truly and highly recommend a, a co-op education because you go to school and then you work. And it's not like you work and take classes, but they assign you for six months to go work for a company. And because they have such great relationships with a number of different companies, it's not like, here, go make some coffee, kid. Come back and we'll talk to you later. Like we were doing spreadsheets specifically for the, trying to figure out uh, how certain promotional programs were working in different parts of the country. So that aside, so I did, I did something. I worked for StrideWrite at one point. Um, and that was terrible. I learned a lot about feet. I learned about that the West coast has, uh, on average, smaller feet than the East coast, the East coast feet are wider. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. A lot of the Asian immigration into the West coast is, has smaller feet versus Eastern Europe or Europeans coming in from the East coast It's fascinating stuff, but it wasn't for me. Um, so I ended up, um, working at General Foods and this guy, Bill Shaw, who ran the marketing department, one of the things that he did on the interview, which I thought was fascinating was, his typical questions you get, and, uh, but then he, he tore out three or four different ads and just put them on the table. And he just asked your opinion on each of them, what worked, what didn't, um, and why. So going back to my uh, art background, understanding graphic design, understanding layout. Um, they weren't necessarily illustrated, they were photographic, but it contributed significantly to my getting the job because uh, I think that, you know, that certainly played a role. And it was one of the things that he commented on, I think, after I'd been hired that, uh, you know, he, he thought, what I had to say about it. I, I couldn't remember right now what I said then, but uh, uh, that, that was a big help. It's another interest. I'm always a big fan of the, the layers that wrap back around and how they make you different than everyone coming in the door and um, coming out of a, a program is that everyone actually comes out looking and smelling the same. So coming in with the different layers sometimes actually help you find that next thing coming, especially out of grad school. But, oh, look, an MBA, what makes you unique? So you then ended up working on the food side of life. Yeah. Right? I, From I the computer for... side of life to the food side of life. Yeah, it was uh, Maxwell House Coffee. Then uh, I worked in, uh, I started there 
I started at Maxwell House. That's when I was doing the co-op. Then I ended up working at, um, they called it corporate, but essentially it was um, a group designed to take all these disparate groups, all these different siloed divisions. So we had, um, we had post cereals, we'd have jello, we'd have, you know, you name it, Entenmann's, one of my favorites. Um, mm. But uh, so all of these would work. Uh, we, our, our job was to get them to work together around specific events to drive additional um, revenue. And what was you know fascinating, I think that's where I really learned about large company corporate politics and um, how things work and how what's best for the company sometimes isn't necessarily reflected in how uh, companies behave uh, in that, uh, you know, you always hear about uh, the company isn't necessarily behaving in the best interest of the employee, but sometimes the company itself isn't acting the way it should uh, for the best interest of the, of the greater good. So you'd have, you know, a tiny little division that would be a part of a uh, event that would see incremental increase in their uh, revenue of, 20, 30%. And the big guys like the you know, coffee guys, it's two, 3%. So they're saying, why are we doing this? It's not, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, so we would have to try and figure out how to wrangle everybody to get them uh, to participate. We had, we had a few successful uh, campaigns there, but what I, what I learned in, you know, the traditional consumer packaged goods business was, uh, was extremely helpful in terms of discipline and um, understanding that small share points make a huge difference in your bottom line, understanding how the trade works, understanding uh, consumer behavior. Uh, but I also looked at the track that I was on, you know, it's 10 years before you start getting directly involved with commercials and advertising and then you're trying to make cheese look sexy <laughs> so, so that people uh will embrace you know, cheese it. can be sexy you know um <laughs> depends on what you're doing with the cheese no I, it, so so um and i know people who've spent their whole careers at the major consumer packaged goods companies and have been happy as whatever i'm not sure i was gonna say happy as clams i'm not sure how happy clams are but uh <laughs> so you were you were looking for the next clam. I mean, you're looking for the next thing to do. How did you end up making the next shift? So I, it, it, there was this new thing called home entertainment that had come on board, uh, you know, turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and what a lot of, entertainment companies were doing is they were leveraging relationships with consumer packaged goods companies to get the word out or to create promotional programs. So I ended up doing this deal with, I want to say it was Paramount. It's Forrest Gump and a few other movies. And this woman, Karen Starr, who I am forever indebted to, uh, she was in, she was in, uh, I guess, promotions agent, uh, working for the studios. She and I had a connection. Uh, we, we put together a program uh, and uh, 
Then she called me a few weeks later. It was, you know, successful. She, she called me a few weeks later. She says, you know, there's this job at Universal Studios that you would be perfect for. And I said, yeah, I have no interest in moving to California because, A, I don't know anybody out there. And, um, uh, yeah, it's a long way away. And it's in, you know, it's, it's, it's with the home entertainment division. I don't really know enough about what that is and how big of a business it is. So she said, well, you know, just try it out. What, what, what harm can it, will fly you out. I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go. So stupid me, I decide, well, I, I don't really think this is going to pan out for anything. So I'm just going to do it in a day. So I flew on a Sunday to uh, California, interviewed Monday, and then flew back that night, Monday, and was back at work on Tuesday. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dumb. I've never been to California before. I'm just going to fly overnight and come on out. <laughs> I know. Well, what's funny is, so the first guy I meet with, first woman I met with was from Brooklyn. The second was, was from uh, the Bronx. The third was from New Jersey. And the fourth was from San Diego, the outlier. So um, they made me feel really at home and comfortable. And, and there was a trend going on in entertainment because they did not have discipline. These were businesses that were growing rapidly. Uh, by the time I had left Universal, I was managing a business that was over, well over $700 million. Um, and if you added in the rental portion of the business for Universal, we were like 1.2 billion, just this division. It was a cash cow of taking existing assets and repurposing them and selling them uh, for and creating convenience, right? You didn't have to uh, wait till the movie came to the theater once again, or you could go to Blockbuster, a thing of the past and, and rent it. So I uh, uh, came back, I, I got a call, they offered me a job and uh, before you know it, I was, uh, this is probably what, September, October. And I was on a plane, uh, to move New Year's Eve of 1994 and started January 2nd, uh, 95. Now, were you a married person at this time? I was not, I was engaged. Uh, so I basically, that following March is when I was, uh, getting married. So I, I left, I did an executive entrance and exit for my wedding because I just flew back in March. <laughs> I had no idea what was happening or, you know, I, I had some idea, but this is well before FaceTime uh, video and being a part of any real decision-making with a lot of communication. Um, but yeah. Uh, but you uh, were making a decision for your fiance to move across the country. She was working at Pricewaterhouse. So, so she talk, was we talked about mobile. it. Yeah. So she, she was like, you know what? I think I can get a transfer and transfer it out to the LA office. And it worked out just fine. Because um, making these decisions as a couple, because during this era, we moved uh, from LA to New York and then New York to LA as we kept whip our, our, our couple mm -hmm. whipsawing back and forth between. And that conversation, when you have dual careers, it's great that she was able to switch but it's an interesting decision-making pathway of the, how is this working for the both of us 
pre-kids is always sort of an interesting lens where people will sometimes follow and then that becomes an interesting journey path. So you ended up out in beautiful Los Angeles in the middle of the DVD boom. Um, yeah. And then what pulled you then to, to the Jim Henson company or when and why? So I had been there for, I guess it was coming on five years. There was a shakeup because Edgar Bronfman at Seagram's bought uh, uh, into Universal and that was a disaster. It was a complete disaster. Um, I don't know him personally, you know, waved a couple of times, uh, but uh, I ended up, uh, there was a big shuffle. There were a lot of people that ended up um, getting uh, moved around. So the guy that was running our division went to international and anyway, they brought in some new people. We didn't, I didn't really care for them. Um, they liked me, wanted me to stick around. I ended up uh, getting a call from uh, Margaret Lesh. So I don't know if you know Margaret Lesh at all, but Margaret, mm -hmm. uh, she ran Fox Kids. She was kind of the, the, the person behind Fox Kids. She ended up going to the Jim Henson Company. And she was like, wow, you know, love to have you here. So I went, interviewed, liked the people, ended up uh, accepting the job. So I accepted the job in November. I was still under contract with Universal. And I told them, I said, look, I'd like to get out of this. I got, you know, X amount of time left. And uh, so they finally let me out of my contract. Two weeks before I was starting, this is in February of the following year, right? November to February. Chris McGurk, who was the head of, he was like as high as you got at Universal, calls me, says, I hear you're uh, planning on leaving. And I said, yeah, you know, my last day is Friday. He's like, well, don't do anything rash. I said, Chris, I, I quit in November. <laughs> <laughs> it's this is a little bit of a lead time, man. <laughs> this is much more lead time than anybody else gives. This is not rash. So um, anyway, long story short, I, I said, my phone number still works if you want to call me. And I ended up, uh, I left and um, started the job at Henson. Um, and Universal pursued me afterward. Uh, I, two, three months, they blew up that group again, put another guy in charge. And then, uh, you know, can we come to lunch? I'd like to talk to you. We're interested in bringing you back on. We want to bring you back on board and we have a whole thing planned, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't see myself doing it because not because I was prescient knowing that the home entertainment business would eventually collapse with the expansion of, of, uh, SVODs and, uh, digital distribution, but mostly because the, um, well, I, I shouldn't say that I, I, I had a little bit of that because about what year was this? So this is uh, around 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. So and I, I would say I did see a little bit of it because there was a huge incremental difference from VHS to uh, DVD, right? It's, yep. you're not rewinding, you're, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. You don't have to be kind anymore. And rewind. Well, and the you cost can... structure was totally different. So you ended up right. with a package good with a cost of goods sold of almost nothing and no need for 
for recording, you know, tape recording time right. and everything you're else. Stamping. That you're stamping pieces of plastic, right? Yeah. And, um, but Blu-ray was introduced. So we were you know, kind of looking at the Blu-ray technology and I'm looking at Blu-ray technology and I'm saying, there is no way anybody is going to be interested in replacing their entire library for Blu-ray. You know, it's good enough. I saw the movie. I consumed it. I'm done. Just, again, part of the reason why I was uh, people wanted me to come in to um, the entertainment side is because really it's a consumer packaged good. That's what we were dealing with. It, it was just a different widget as opposed to a box of cereal. It was a DVD or a VHS uh, cassette. So we're still dealing with Walmart, Kmart, Target at the time. All those and even more so because they were bigger and bigger part of the business as it was yeah. moving from rental to purchase. Yeah. So Henson was interesting, you know, when I, when I uh, got there um, because it was still a studio, but a much, much smaller version. And there were things that I really had to get used to, like not having the support to be able to do some basic things. But, you know, it was a cool, uh, we were at Raleigh Studios um, right across from Paramount. And um, I really liked, uh, I liked the lot that we were on. There were some cool buildings. Well, it's the old A&M lot and the old Charlie Chaplin lot. I mean, it's that cool space that has had so much history. Well, actually that where we, where I started was before that. So before that, Oh, you were down, you were down. Um, oh, um, sorry. I wasn't even thinking the Raleigh lot, the lot that is across from Paramount on Melrose. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. We eventually moved to the, um, uh, to the A&M records, old A&M records space. And that place is beautiful. I think the Henson's are, incredibly uh good at real estate <laughs> that is you know that is one of the things that they're they're really really good at but um you know and i, I had contemplated i'd really wrestled with going back as a potential opportunity uh, back to universal because you know getting those jobs at big studios and sticking with them for a long period of time is you know it's it's not uh not they're not easy to get and uh, they're hard to hold on to. So uh, anyway, I ended up uh, working at Henson. Uh, was running their home in, home entertainment division, um, and eventually, uh, over subsequent years, uh, ran their consumer products business as well. Um, but so this is uh, about the time I met you, and I'm going to sort yeah. of move the conversation a, a bit because you've had such a great history, and it, it to me. Sorry, yeah, I don't mean to be. No, even... no, no, no. Sorry at all. This I remember at one point in time we were talking, and you, you, we walked out to your car, and you showed me in the back of your car the toys that you were building and the game. Hmm. So even despite you being big corporate guy and then small corporate guy, you're being creative guy. So you already were having these things that you were tinkering with in the background of board games and board games, right? That you're in board games and yep. you had some kind of a toy that turned into a game and mm -hmm. you were being Mr. Creative and, and having that. Can you tell that story and then tell where you got to? Cause I think you, you, um, you you seem to go on a, a a journey of working with various people's brands and helping brand monetize 
them, but not necessarily with a big shop. Can you sort of talk about how you've balanced the creative you and then the other people's brands you? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I've always, <laughs> it's funny, when I've worked at, whether it was Universal or Henson or any of these places, um, I always, when I was in a position where I, where I was assigned different things, I was always assigned the tough brands to figure out how to do something with them. So um, when I was at Universal, they were doing, remember the television series, Hercules and Xena? Uh, Xena, Warrior Princess. Xena, Warrior Princess and Hercules. Well, and Kevin Sorbo. So um, we did an animated series that was more anime style, but trying to figure out how to make that was a challenge. It was, um, when I was at Henson, trying to figure out what to do with Labyrinth and Dark Crystal as legacy properties after the, this is like a total separate podcast about just that, the sale of Henson to EMTV and the buyback and then this, the meetings with Eisner and with uh, Iger and selling the Muppets and a uh, whole fascinating uh, story. But well, can um, you talk about those? Cause we're glad to come back and talk about some of this stuff. And part of it, of course, this will live out on its own. <laughs> yeah, right, so whether right. you want to tell some of these stories in a public setting or not, but you lived through really interesting times of all this. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. And you know, chaos breeds opportunity. So the, the idea that, that um, there were things that were being, uh, being produced, or I should say there were brands that maybe lay fallow that we need to figure out what to do with them to create uh, more interest. You know, you think about the Muppets as a property came out in the seventies. And um, by the time, you know, the year 2000 rolls around, I mean, it's a long, a long mm -hmm. time. So um, I created an artificial event, you know, the 25th anniversary of the Muppets and, um, did all kinds of things. I mean, crazy stuff like, uh, nine different cars that were all decked out with different characters in a, a NASCAR race in Chicago. <laughs> so there was like the race within the race, right? Will the piggy car beat, uh, the Pepe car versus the Fozzie car kind of like uh, the marbles thing now do you follow the marbles races no you, I, you oh dear you told me about this you, wait you told me a little bit about this maybe so 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 first i should say for certain people they'll go well of course the marbles race channels on youtube and other people go what are you talking about so mm -hmm. creating artificial sporting events is is not it's it's not a new thing <laughs> but no, there's no. all sorts of current incarnations of it too well, you know, I also put together the first live Muppet show. So, uh, I, you know, everyone thought I was out of my mind um, with wanting to pull this off. Martin Baker, who was the original, um, he was the floor manager, I believe, for the original Muppet show. He was the head of production. Um, we got all these, you know, all of the original um, uh uh, performers who were who were still with us, uh, Steve Whitmire, Dave Goles, um, and then later characters like Bill Beretta, and we put on you know, a live Muppet show 
And um, it was incredible. It was that, that was, I think, one of the, the biggest highlights. But, you know, going back to, and I, was I, did I write the show? No, Jim Lewis did. Did I uh, uh, physically produce the show? Well, Martin did. But it was, it was my uh, concept, idea, brought it all together. So it was kind of like that, you know, executive producer uh, space. And it was fantastic. Uh, but going back to, you know, how did this all work? Well, Henson uh, was a huge opportunity for me in that I went to Brian at one point and said, you know, I'd love to do a, a movie about um, Kermit as a kid. Uh, and let's do it for home entertainment. And um, went to Sony, who was our distribution partner. And I'm, again, deeply indebted to Ben Feingold, who was running it at the time, who took a flyer and did a low-budget feature film called Kermit Swamp Years, starring Kermit as a 12-year-old. He's telling the story of him as a kid. It's the first movie I ever did, um, and it gets nominated for a primetime Emmy. So uh, for me, that was a turning point where um, – and the best behind-your-back story – in Hollywood you can ever uh, imagine, which is, so I'm working on this concept. I've got this whole thing together and I find out that the writer, this guy, Jim Lewis, and another guy, Kirk Thatcher, who had nothing to do with the movie at all, but he was hired by both of these guys, hired by Jim Henson and, um, you know, real uh, stalwarts within the, the company. They went to the CEO, this guy, Charlie Rifkin at the time. And they said, Hey, you know what? Mike needs to be, uh, producer he needs to get a producer credit for this movie because of all the things that he you know he it's his idea uh and they came back and charlie's like you know i see this paper on my desk saying uh you're you know the, you're an exec producer on this project and if i didn't have that and i was just an executive at the company which i never would have gotten at universal without a lot of fist fighting um, and that set me up to become, because I got nominated, then I got more involved with Television Academy. I was uh, uh, two-time, two-term governor with the uh, uh, Television Academy that, you know, that, that produced the Emmys. Uh, and then produced another film uh, with Neil Gaiman and Dave McKeon uh, called Mirror Mask, which is Neil's first movie. So going back to the all the way to the beginning. So it started the whole um, producing kind of uh, uh, path for me. And, and honestly, that's been one of the more fun things. It's also one of the most, uh, how can I say this uh, politely, I guess, you know, <laughs> Difficult. Occasionally frustrating. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. Uh, uh, you know, it's it it truly uh, I think gives uh, credence to the concept of a seven year overnight sensation. But I, I, I've you know that that in and of itself that that was my break, if you will, to break into doing content. Can you then take us to Yo Gabba Gabba? Sure. Um, well, can I say one quick thing about breaking into content that before sure, sure. I, um, I, you know, having had marketing in my background, 
and being very business oriented, I will say there was a tremendous amount of, I don't know of a better term, except to say prejudice against, against those like myself who were perceived not to have paid their dues in a different path, like starting mm. out as a script reader or, you know, development person and working your way up to an executive, you know, some felt that I had jumped the, uh, wall and, you know, who the hell are you? You know, I, I actually had one person you should have say, been standing in queue this whole time with the rest of us. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I actually had someone say to me, you know, uh, you don't deserve to be, this is on my first uh, film, you don't deserve to be, uh, to have a credit on this. And in my defense, one of the guys who was working with said, well, did you come up with the concept for this? Well, no. Well, did you actually sell the concept and get it funded by Sony? Well, no. Well, did you rally everyone together to actually get it sold internally and put pieces? Well, no. Well, then he did all that. Why? Why is you know why is it an issue? So you know, a lot of it is uh, frustration, I think, on the part of people who have, and also not not having an understanding of who I am as a person in in, in terms of understanding storytelling and character and development and all that kind of stuff. And by the way. I can't say that I, I don't, I didn't know as much then as I know now, you know, you, you keep growing and learning as time goes on. So anyway, um, back to GABA. Uh, <laughs> so Charlie Rivkin, who is the head of uh, Henson leaves, goes to a company called Wild Brain. And he and I had a really good relationship. Um, we, we had a lot of debates about things um, and um, back at Henson, uh, he was very concerned about taking certain brands and putting them with certain um, characters and whether they would denigrate. And I actually, it proved out that I was right and that we had uh, tremendous success. We ended up doing you know, MasterCard, Super Bowl commercials, all kinds of crazy stuff. So we established a really good relationship and a trusting trusted relationship. So when he went to, um, uh, wild brain, you know, we were just talking and, you know, this idea came up that, uh, they've got this show, which is, they're just working on that they think is going to be big, um, uh, got a bit of a tiger by the tail. So we need some help. So I ended up going over there starting out as chief marketing officer, but really trying to figure out how to launch that brand with Nickelodeon and everybody else and uh, really enjoyed it. So the first season uh, launches and, you know, there I am with a desk and a phone, uh, no staff, no nobody uh, to really work with and had to build an entire consumer products business uh, and had to figure out how to make that creative uh, from that show, which was so cutting edge and fun into something that, people would uh, did you guys know it was going to blow up the way it did we had some inklings and so what we what, what we initially did was we took um some of the characters and did high-end vinyl toys through kid robot we had a relationship with kid Ro robot the rbc company owned kid robot as well as wild brain so we had we owned them 
and could, um, uh, so we tried that and they sold out within a heartbeat. And then we did some hoodies sold out right away. So we knew that there, there was a particular thing that was happening with that show that uh, resonated not just with kids, but with adults as well. And it was a similar experience that I had on Bear in the Big Blue House. I'd worked on that show. And I love that show. Such a, <laughs> such a great show. Um, but the Let's parents, take it upstairs. Sorry. Oh, yeah. You know, my, my, my favorite anecdote about Bear is I was at FAO Schwartz back when it was next to you know, the Apple store, the big, beautiful store. Bear is doing an appearance. And Bear is intimidating. You know, like when you think about it, they've got a kid who's the maybe. big what, blue stuff, Bear. Yeah. Blue, well, right? three, blue? three feet tall. No, no. He's, he's, well, his nose is blue. But okay. you know, Noel, the character, he's got his arm up in the air. That thing is eight foot tall. But he can bring it all the way down to a you know a kid who's five or six, and there was a kid in line, and I said, "Do you want to meet Bear?" And the, the line was going a, around the store, and I'm trying to push him along, and he says, "No." I said, "I said you you know parents wanted to kill him you know because they waited for like an hour," and uh, he said, "No, I don't need to meet him," and I said, "Why not?" He said, "Well, because he knows me already." I said. Aww. How does he? Uh, uh, how does he know you already? He said, "Well, he sniffs me at the beginning of every show." So the beauty of that show is when the show opens, Bear's nose comes right up to camera and sniffs and says, "Oh, hi, it's you." And yeah, uh, very fourth wall breaking right there in your yeah. face. Yeah, and <sighs> and I think Gabba has that same kind of connection with with. Uh, parents and kids because they'd, they'd watch their kids go crazy uh, over uh, things that were happening. And frankly, the the other component was there were bits that were uh, put up on YouTube, like Don't Bite Your Friends or um, There's a Party in My Tummy, which were brilliant songs created that ended up delivering a huge uh, audience. Uh, so I, I think those two things uh, were, were big components. Uh, so listening to your story and I would mm -hmm. actually love to have you back because I think oh, we can thanks. go into a lot more detail in some of this great stuff. And, and I want to continue us on the, on the journey, but, um, you, some of us go on walkabout for a while that we are looking for the next thing and that then you know, we might be looking at 10 things to figure out one thing. And you seem to have a story of the, you know, Joe Smith said, Oh, come with me. And and you've had people who have been handing you a question or a new opportunity or come with me to X as a continuing journey story. Is that how you see it? Or did you look at many different things to then say, I will go with you? Well, yeah, I leave out all of the uh, no thanks. Uh, it doesn't quite work. You know, the, during the dot com bubble, there are plenty of places to go leap to that I uh, respectfully declined. Uh, so, yes, it was. You know, I, I can't say that I had this sniper approach to I want to do this particular job at this particular company, and that is all I'd stand for. I think that's a recipe for disaster if. If you're that narrow, unless you are, you know, you want to be a neurosurgeon and you're working your way 
toward that narrow path in in entertainment opportunity definitely um you you have to be prepared for you know that that whole luck is uh you know it's a combination of skill uh connections luck lots of different perspiration but luck is a big part of it yeah yeah, yes 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 perspiration and perseverance uh so so yes uh but it all stems from conversations where did i uh surreptitiously uh create that idea in a third party that they should bring me on or uh were they coming with the intent of saying we should uh partner and collaborate and i'd love to have you know how, how can we work together i don't know you know what you know what which came first but uh that 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 has been you're right it has been a pattern that has that has uh, followed uh followed me throughout my career so then how given that lens how did you birth atomic toy box so it all started because back in the day i was i was th- this was going to be my creative outlet my personal creative outlet i had carve outs at all these different companies for my own stuff that I was working on. Some you know, completely nutty stuff. In, in fact, it's so funny. I was driving my daughter to Colorado in uh, just last month. And we stop at some you know, little diner place, uh, not even a gas station in Utah. And I walk up to a vending machine and I see these stickers in it from a property that I created in 2002 and sold sticker rights to and never seen the stickers. So it's stuff like that. So Atomic was created as a, uh, uh, a, a vehicle to be able to uh, uh, take some of my own personal projects and kind of run them through. So believe it or not, this is the 20th anniversary this year of atomic that's it's been around that long but it hasn't really been you, you know up to its full potential after I, after I left wild brain that's when I really started to concentrate on uh, on atomic so you have a screen behind you that I, I think is rolling through some of your current adventures yeah so there are some uh, projects in here so I picked up this is uh, Captain Action. So I bought into a property from the 1960s called Captain Action, which has got a great title, great name. Uh, it was a popular toy. The guy who created G.I. Joe, this was the second toy he created. And then the third was uh, the Mego superhero action figures. So um, I've been uh, working with uh, a couple of guys. So I've got two partners on it. They kind of have been focused on the nostalgic side of things. They really concentrate on the uh, 1960s, uh, uh, I would say, uh, whether that's comics or art or, but, you know, like, and um, the 1960s toy line, which is a very specific. My focus has been really on how to redevelop it for uh, newer, uh, younger audience that uh, can engage in it because it's you know it's it's a tricky property in that 
the original Razor Razorblade concept. If you buy the Captain Action figure, and then you have all these licensed uniform sets with Spider-Man, Batman, uh, Buck Rogers, the Green Hornet. You know, it's a licensing nightmare, and you can't do that with entertainment. So we're we're looking at. I have a completely different concept set up for it. So you now are a man of action yourself. You have a portfolio <laughs> of opportunities. Yes. And you are your own shop now. Um, if uh, if you wanted to maybe shout out as maybe my last question, you have things that you would like to connect with people on that are in your various wheelhouses now. Mm-hmm. What are you looking for and where are you trying to grow your next adventure? So one of the things I'm really interested in is in publishing. Um, on the traditional publishing, you know, books, ebooks uh, side, because it's a great way to work story, get stories out, graphic novels, etc. So I, I, that's something I'm really interested in. Um, also, casual games, as opposed to you know, I love to do platform games, but they're very expensive. So I'm interested in learning whether or not there are those that would be interested in partnering on that. I have uh, a few people that I've been talking to on that side of things. It's just because the entertainment side takes so long um, to uh, get stuff up off the ground. Not saying that games are any easier, but uh, I think that uh, it'd be great to talk more about that. And then I can say lastly, on the collectible side of things, if there are categories that would, would be of interest, I've got, you know, another property called Window Ghosts. We've got something called Mega Weird. Um, there are, uh, and then a, a, the other project, um, which is uh, uh, called Wicked Creatures, uh, which was developed with a good friend, Ed Eith, who worked for Spielberg for years. I've uh, got some input from my good friend, uh, Chris Wallace, who created the uh, Gremlins. Uh, mm. and, uh, won an Oscar for the fly. So, you know, those, those guys have been, in, you know, instrumental in getting that, uh, together. Well, we have talked over many, many things. What have we not talked about that you'd want to mention as we wrap up? Um, I would say that, the, you know, the one thing that, that I've found in my lifetime, uh, career, whatever you want to call it uh, these days is that, uh, you don't always realize the moment when someone's influence has, uh, has had an impact until sometimes after the fact, you know, it sometimes takes years to realize that there was a, uh, nexus point or, a uh, a, a point at which, your life really diverged. And if it wasn't for, sometimes it's a single person, sometimes it's a group of people, but I was thinking like, you know, how do you, how do you go back and thank them for their uh, willingness to uh, give you a chance or take a shot or do whatever. But uh, yeah. Have you gone back to thank them? Some, yeah, I've, some I've gone back and and helped in ways that um, I've, I've tried with everybody. Um, mm-hmm. there's one that I, I've, I've never quite figured out how to do what they want. You know, there was a little bit of quid pro quo with one of them who wanted some business and I couldn't throw it to them because of certain restrictions within, you know, the company that I was at. So I've always felt terrible about that, but, um, uh, but yeah, you know, I've, I've tried my best to acknowledge it at a minimum, 
uh, if not try and do something for them because without, without their support, you know, wouldn't be here. And then, then the other thing is um, having spoken at a couple of classes with other, you know, uh, uh, kids, I say kids, you don't realize the impact that you have on other people either. Where you know, I talked about the land before time, I worked on the land before time when I was at Universal, completely uncredited. And the number of kids who look up, start paying attention, raise their hand and say, you know, I, I got involved in entertainment because of that franchise or because of those stories. So, you know, there's some there. That's also uh, nice, too. So how can people best reach out to you, find you, and who would you like to find you? Um, let's see. Best place. Well, first off, if you go to atomictoybox.com, you can take a look at what's there. There's ways, ways to reach me on that site uh, with email and and other. So happy to um, hear from uh, folks that are interested in taking a look at what we do and, and, and what I, what I do. Um, but I, you know, I think that, uh, I'm always looking for partners in crime, not necessarily true crime, but, uh, <laughs> creating, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, that's a, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I would say that, you know, the ask would be, uh, uh, you know, I'm always looking for distributors. I'm always looking for uh, folks interested in investing in uh, content or content production. <clears throat> um, you know, the best kinds of partnerships are those that, uh, you know, we both get something out of it uh, that uh, really helps drive things forward. Because, you know, the, the worst kind of deal you can make is one where one person makes out and the other doesn't because that's a one-time deal. So, Mike. I'm so glad we met back in the day and I'm so glad that you came on the podcast and I will drag you back on for further conversations in your fascinating past. But thank you very much for this episode, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with Creative Innovators in 2024.